welcome to more to come. PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing, recorded at our various places of domicile around the, you know, pandemic-ridden New York City. Uh, I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly, Editor of PW Comics World, and Editor of the Fanatic PW's uh, twice-a-month comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer. And you can find us online on Tumblr at pwcomicsworld.tumblr.com. And, uh, you know, I guess I should also say that, uh, you know, uh, Kate and I are uh, we're working a little shorthand this week. We won't have Heidi with us. Uh, she has a previous engagement, but we, she will be back, of course. Uh, and don't forget, you can subscribe to more to come on iTunes. And on Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash PW Comics World. And please, dear listeners, remember, we live by feedback. You know, it's we, we don't hear from you nearly enough. We feel like we're podcasting into a void. So if there's something you want us to know, good, bad, indifferent, speak up. There you Send go. us an, a text. Oh, sorry. Send us a tweet. Uh, give us a review. Let us know how you feel. Reach out and touch, why don't you? That's okay. In a virtual fashion. Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, so uh, this week on More to Come, Comics After COVID. It's an online panel by the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Uh, convention update. Um, new jobs uh, and movement around the industry. And streaming and movie uh, uh, update with individual updates on WandaVision, Ray and the Dragon, uh, Yasuke, and a bit more. Raya the Last Dragon. Yes, excuse me, Raya the Last Dragon. Oh, wait, no, we're both wrong. It's Raya and the Last Dragon. Okay, Raya and the Last Dragon. Right. But, you know, no matter what we call it, this is a really uh, important and uh, wonderful animated movie. So we'll, we'll, we'll chat about that a little bit. But um, to kick things off, <coughs> without Heidi, <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. I think you all know that um, uh, following a, uh, a change in leadership uh, at the Comic Book Legal, uh, Legal Defense Fund, Jeff Trexler uh, is the interim um, uh, executive director. Uh, he's managing the process. Of, of bringing in a new executive, uh, a new executive leadership at the CBLDF, LDF. but they're also um, working on um, uh, basically changing the culture uh, at the CBLDF, and also changing the kind of services that you might uh, um, uh, that, that their constituents expect from them, as well as as, as strengthening their longtime mission to fight uh, censorship, and to be of service uh, to publishers, retailers, librarians, uh, and the artists uh, of the comic book industry. So um, this past, let's see, I have to check exactly when it was. Uh, I think this this happened in late February, and it's called Comics After COVID. Uh, it's an uh, it's an effort by the CBL, uh, CBLDF to, to address uh, their constituents, to talk about people uh, dealing with um, – the pandemic, uh, really specifically to talk about the comics industry and to talk about different uh, sectors of the comics industry dealing with it. So they brought together um, a panel of professionals uh, 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 that included Amy Chu, um, comics writer extraordinaire. Uh, you know, she's moved into uh, even writing for animation now. Uh, so she was talking really bit about being um, – being a comics writer in the business during the pandemic. Um, Anna Warren Sebrin, who uh, runs, um, she's the owner of the retail, of a retailer in Santa Clara, and I think it's, El what is it, Elusive Comics uh, and Gaming and the Isle of Gaming. You know, I'm going to check that, uh, check back that again to make sure I haven't mangled it. Uh, and also Kamal Hennessy, who has been a, a guest on, um, uh, on the show here. And he was a, he's a, he's a, a comic book industry lawyer. He's written a, uh, a well-regarded book that Heidi actually interviewed him about 
called The Business of Independent Comic Book Publishing, and he was talking about how the pandemic had affected his clients. Uh, he works a lot with people who are independent authors as well as independent comics publishers, as well as people who make use of uh, crowdfunding and whatnot. And he talks about uh, how you structure your business. But he talked a little bit about what happened to him and, and uh, other people in the independent sector of the business during the pandemic. Um, so uh, what I so want where to, can we find this yeah, panel, Calvin? That, that's a good question, and I'm going to answer it right now. Um, it, it, they have archived the um, – I, I believe it's on YouTube session. You can find it at the uh, Comic Book Legal Defense Fund website. That's cbldf.org. Uh, it's called Comics After COVID. Right now it's right on the front page uh, of the website, and that will give you a link. It's free to, uh, to, to look about an hour. And um, like I said, it's, it's actually a very useful conversation. And this is a, shows another facet of CBLDF. It's really kind of the um, – it, it was kind of a town hall meeting um, uh, to really kind of talk about the industry, where it was at, and really kind of use personal experience of the panelists uh, you know, to try to illuminate um, how the, the, the challenges of the pandemic, how it's changed both companies and individual artists, and uh, where they think the industry is going in the future – uh, with many of the changes uh, brought on by the pandemic. So um, uh, it, without rambling on too long, very quickly, I want to jump in and just talk a little bit about uh, Amy Chu was very good. Uh, she really talked about how it affected her as a writer um, in in the ways not foreseen, for instance. Of course, uh, most comics writers obviously work in the home anyway, as does she on multiple products. That didn't change. What changed, of course, is that everybody in her family was home all day too. Mm -hmm. uh, so that took a little uh, getting used to. But um, she also talked about uh, the tough side of it for her, in particular being, you know, uh, you know, an Asian American. Uh, she talked about the rise in anti-Asian violence mm -hmm. uh, and really um, how it impacted her, how she feels now about traveling. Um, uh, uh, on the one hand, she talked also about uh, the jolt of there being no conventions, uh, yeah. where you know obviously for professional reasons. But she also talks about the power of community in the comic book industry. And and, and look, uh, you know we're we're going through a period where we're looking at some of the fl the faults and flaws in comic book culture. But when it works well, I mean we are a community, and and and, and conventions. Uh, are the places where we, you know, we reconnect and we uh, connect with the people that we care about, um, and that's all gone. Yeah, or, or yeah. it was gone. I mean, it's one of those things where the lack of it really shows just how well it works for comics. Sure. I mean, we can talk about conventions purely commercial sense of like, oh, buy merch there. Oh, you know, they make make dollars there, and I mean that's true, but. I think given how many people miss all the creative and social aspects of the convention scene and the communal aspects of the convention scene, I think it shows that a good convention has a much deeper place in the heart of comics than oh, just yeah. somewhere to buy crap. Yeah, I mean that's uh, yeah. As, Not that I think mind that, buying crap, but you know. yeah, yes, no, no, that's a big part of the fan experience. But but really, uh, without a doubt, and you, and you really hit on it. This is, I mean, it, it, now they also talked about the commercial impact. I mean, oh, you know, yeah, there, there are some people actually who build their whole distribution model about going to one, two, or three conventions a month. Uh, on the other hand. This is also where we reconnect and 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 uh, with the people that we care about or inspired by, uh, or that who are or who are available. And it's a huge, it's a huge uh, a loss, a huge absence uh, when Absolutely. this has gone away. Um, uh, by the same, oh, and I should say, um, she mentioned uh, that uh, the this really disturbing explosion of anti-Asian violence. Mm -hmm. um, it's given her pause. 
um, but has also um, uh, created some new projects for her. She's working on something with DC now called a, a, a project based around Asian, uh, Asian Pacific heritage. So she was very excited about that and talking about a little bit that this is um, this is one of the good things uh, to come out of this um, uh, it, this well this period of really confusion, flux, challenge, and opportunity that. You know, the pandemic is really an, um, is a mixed bag of, of possibility. By the same token, Anna, Anna Warren, uh, the owner of Isle of Gamers, and um, I believe the story is uh, – hold on. You know, before I mangle her, uh, her business yet again, let me just make sure. Uh, uh, she is the owner of uh, Elusive Comics and Games. As well as um, the Isle of uh, of Gaming, they're both in San, uh, Santa Clara, and um, she talked about the impact on her as a retailer and as a single mom. Uh, tried to raise her kid, keep her business going, keep her staff safe, uh, and and then be flexible enough to respond to whatever opportunities that they had to keep their business going. Uh, for instance. Uh, they had a website and they were almost about to get rid of it because they sold so few books through it. It was really almost a courtesy effort to have it. Uh, they, you know, they that changed. That changed. You know, they, you know, maybe they would sell a few books when there was a an in-store event, but all of a sudden, within a month, their one of their biggest uh, channels for sales was this website that they had to scramble. To actually get it prepared and get it ready, um, uh, and now all of a sudden she's got staff that's completely devoted to you know online uh, to online sales. Um, but but she talked you know quite a bit about just it being a really an unsettling period. But she also talked about being flexible, being nimble, um, uh, uh, um, rethinking your business model, not. Uh, uh, for instance, and uh, obviously your store is based in California. Her 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 customers were extremely loyal. They weren't. They were going to continue to buy. The problem, what they hated, they hated um, curbside pickup. Mm. If you're going to a comic store, they want to be able to browse. They they did not. They did. They weren't interested in it. They want. They would rather buy online and do other kinds of things. So. Well, I mean, I can see how it's in many ways the worst of both worlds for a customer. Oh, you don't God. get to enjoy the store, but you still have to travel. And and she talked about the power of comics content, and, and I and I sh- and I shouldn't jump over this because I thought it was really moving. Um, and Amy Chu talked about this as well. Uh, that the fans want. Stories. They still wanted their stories. I mean, they were having problems figuring out how to get it. And we have to remember, this was taking place during a time where Diamond shut down for seven weeks. Mm-hmm. And many stores where their loyal customer base was still saying, okay, I know you're having problems. I still want to buy what I would ordinarily buy. But they didn't have it to sell. So it was often a scramble to kind of find content until um, uh, stuff came up. And then Amy talked about Boom, she went from having projects canceled to being almost overwhelmed with having new projects oh, wow. and, and all of them do at the same time because, <laughs> you know. Because nothing, suddenly they all want content all at Absolutely, because everything had been shut down. And as soon as the uh, the channels opened up again, the, ma- the demand was right there it, it, even more so. Um, mm. And, and let me jump very quickly before I go on too long about this to, uh, to, to Kamal Hennessy. Uh, he was really talking about a variety of, of business aspects, but uh, he talked about you know how distribution was disrupted. Um, uh, but he also talked about how uh, this forced many of his independent clients, uh, who are artists, to be uh, uh, to be more more uh, more creative. He also talked about how. Uh, you know the industry obviously has been hit with many layoffs, and you know we've 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 talked about the, the impact on DC Comics. But he felt, he said this led to many people, and some of the other panelists talked about this too. Uh, people with in the comics industry that had a little time on their hands were actually in some instances able to turn 
to do projects that maybe they've been putting off um, that now uh, was the time and space where they could devote uh, their attention to it. And he talked about that too. And in fact, many of the uh, people that uh, left companies like DC decided to launch that independent project that they've been thinking about for a while. So he had, he had an, an upturn in business. Um, yeah. He also talked about the, the contract relationships uh, between publishers and artists out there. How do you deal with the terms of a contract when all of the, the, uh, uh, all of the um, uh, presumed outcomes were basically on hold? Um, he talked about, you know, uh, you know, acts of God clauses in contracts, force majeure, but even those clauses didn't necessarily anticipate uh, a complete shutdown of not only your primary business but all the suppliers to your business. Yeah. So uh, it, once again, this was just simply uh, uh, an opportunity for an industry of creative people to be uh, uh, creative. And uh, – and I'm going to wrap this up here – and many of the things – uh, that were a lifeline during the pandemic uh, are going to actually in some ways linger on. And we've talked about this on the program also. They're going to linger on as a, in, in a hybrid formation when we return to in-store events. I think we're going to see a lot more online panels. Um, uh, the retailer, uh, Anna Warren, she talked quite a bit about the fact that she was able to actually be a part of Comics Pro. Because she usually can't go because it's, it's close on the heels of another convention. She has to be in the store. But she was able to go when it was online. She really thinks that this is something that needs to be, uh, you know, um, uh, to, to continue to be a part of the industry events. And I think that's what she's going to see going forward. Yeah. And I mean, I think we always talk about after COVID, after COVID, after COVID. But I don't think it's going to be a like an on-off switch. I think there's going to be a long period of time. Um, I think there's going to be a long period where, you know, some events will be open, some won't, and it's just going to like stagger forward into whatever it becomes. So I think that'll – I don't know if there will ever be a cutoff line where people say, okay, now we don't need to do virtual events again. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right about that. Well, uh, and, and and in some ways that's a perfect segue. Um, I will say uh, from the the CBLDF uh, Comics After COVID panel, and I'm just going to mention once again that if uh, this this panel has been archived, uh, it's lively and it's got uh, it's, I think kind of useful personal detail, and you can get it at cbldf.org and just look for Comics After COVID. But that, that's a good trans, uh, uh, a good segue into an update about um, you know, the coming year in, com in, in comics conventions, in particular the San Diego Comic Con and what's going to happen with that. So um, they issued uh, – uh, I guess this was last week they issued a um, – well, basically an update that they were – that it's still too close. We're still under a, a serious pandemic, public health concerns. There's really no way, even if you're thinking ahead to, you know, mid-July, that you could really put on, as they put it, a pop culture convention of this magnitude. So um, what they've essentially decided to do is uh, WonderCon, which the uh, uh, the San Diego Comic-Con people also manage, uh, and, and the San Diego Comic-Con uh, will be a virtual event yet again, uh, but – uh, and, and, and I'll say WonderCon, WonderCon at home is going to be scheduled for March 26th and 27th, and uh, Comic-Con at home uh, will take place between uh, July 23rd and July 25th, and, and, and that will be online. But uh, as a, a special event to the year, and I guess as a way to sort of, you know, Slowly move back uh, toward planning in-person events. Comic-Con International uh, is going to hold a special three-day in-person pop culture event uh, as yet unnamed uh, mm. in November to, uh, 2021. So this is interesting. Yeah, it will be especially interesting if New York Comic-Con is open. 
I mean, I'm just wondering. I wonder whether the originally scheduled November cons are going to go forward. I wonder what the San Diego offshoot con is going to be like. Like this, this could be a very interesting convention season. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, for 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 multiple reasons. One of which is that as we see the rollout of the vaccine picking up, uh, we're starting to hear uh, stuff like uh, we're actually doing a good job <laughs> for a change. Uh, you know, this could actually change the landscape, particularly as we get more into the spring and we get a. A reading on where, what, you know, the healthcare crisis situation is across the country as more and more people get access to the vaccine. Yeah. That could really change how these conventions, particularly the ones that are scheduled for the fall, uh, whether they think that they can actually do in-person events or not. Um, well, but even, I just don't know. That even with the vaccine and the possible vaccine passport that the airlines are are calling for, uh, you know whether you can get the same amount of people into a building. Well, you know, it, it, uh, I would suspect that they don't want the same amount, but they yeah. they want incremental. Uh, you know, they want some. Uh, uh, you know, what would you how, how would you describe? They want some smaller version as we move in, in methodically step-by-step step back to, to, you know, to, to being able to do a full-on, you know, yeah. San Diego megacon. Uh, so that, you know, hesitancy as well as probably some self-imposed uh, attendance restrictions, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, but that's what the, that's why, I mean, I think that's one reason why this event in November will be actually kind of an interesting experiment. Um, what will the landscape look like in November? You know, and we may know more about that in, by the summer or late summer. And this could be, I mean, I mean, my feeling is that 2022 is when we will really see, uh, the conventions come back in some in-person form that's similar to the past. Now, there may not be 150,000 people, uh, in San Diego, but it might be tens of thousands. Yeah, I mean, and let's be honest, 150,000 people is an insane number of people. You can it's still true. have a very large convention with a, a quarter of that, an eighth <laughs> of that. And you know what? I think um, the, all of the, all of the uh, uh, related parties would be, t- be be ecstatic if we could just get you know get the thing going back and and, and slowly start building back to uh, the kind of event it, you know it was previously. So. We will see. I think all eyes will be on um, uh, Comic Con International to see how the, the nature of this, what the nature of this uh, special three-day event will be. They haven't issued any information, and they're going to be. Uh, there'll be more to come on that. Uh, probably, I would imagine by the spring sometime. They, so no details have been given out about it, about a, a attendance or tickets or anything. But this may be a good effort for them to show off maybe what a hybrid in-person, you know, online convention will look like. We'll see. We will see. And this is uh, where Heidi would say, there will be more to come on that. And, and, indeed, there will be. Um, let's see. All right. Okay. So now um, – People are moving around in this industry for all of the best reasons and for, you know, some of the not so great reasons. So let's see what we've got here. Former yes. DC co-editor in charge, Michelle Wells, yes. now at Tapas Media. Yes. Uh, just in case anybody's wondering, Tapas Media is a digital comics, I suppose you might say, company platform yes it's a platform it's a platform um they're making noises about you know expanding their reach and how she's going to bring a whole bunch of of different potential there they have kind of a web comics empire 
Um, it's, it's definitely part of the vanguard of web comics on your phone. Yes, absolutely. They cater to the mobile market. Uh, they're exploding with attention. They're based, uh, uh, Tapas is also, if I mean, if I'm not mistaken, it's Korea, um, uh, based originally. Uh, they have a U.S. facing part of the company, much like Webtoon. But they're, they're doing similar stuff. They're, um, uh, creating a, an enormous amount of, of original content. Uh, a lot of it based, uh, around the manga visual style. Um, so the comics, uh, are digital native, uh, and, uh, they're, the layout, how the storytelling is told is very, it's different. That said, th- this is really capturing the imagination of a younger generation. Uh, and, uh, both of the companies, both Webtoon and Tapas are partnering with, um, you know, more conventional comics publishers and book publishers to issue print um versions of their online comics. And Michelle Wells steps into I mean she uh uh for those who may not know she was uh she was um she headed up the DC uh young reader graphic novel imprints that are going gangbusters now. So it was a bit of a surprise when she got laid off at DC as well. Uh she was also the former interim editor in chief for a minute. Um but uh, – and I think she was a VP of content strategy at DC. But she's going to be chief content officer at Tapas Media. So she's going to really be overseeing pretty much everything they do. So uh, she's kind of landed in a in – a actually, in my opinion, a pretty great spot for her talents. And she's got a, a long talent in the book trade before she moved into DC. Yeah. Uh, so, and let's see, um, there were some other movements. Let's see, there's some stuff at yes, ICW. Yes, indeed, and TKO. Oh, yeah, 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 let me get that. Yes, so, right. TKO is bringing on Colleen Lindsay as Senior Marketing Manager and Social Media. Sorry, Senior Manager of Marketing and Social Media. Um, she was formerly at Amazon and Delray. And TKO has also hired Mark Viznick as Vice President of Sales and Business Development. So he's going to be doing global sales, distribution, rights, e-commerce, and so on. And he was formerly at Ingram and Lonely Planet. And um, Lonely Planet has a heck of a sales uh, footprint out there. So that's that's a nice, interesting, interesting set of talent there. Absolutely. And and really, in some ways, this is and one of the things that TKO and I did a story about this back in uh, in January. You know, T, TKO uh, is a new um, independent comics publisher. They've got a curious, interesting model based on um, binge binge consumption. Um, all of the books uh, that they publish, they're available on PubDate in every format. Any, you know that you could want. They are available as um, miniseries and the traditional comic book form. They're they're uh, available as um, graphic novels, complete, and in digital formats. So they've got an interesting. Plus, they bring together outstanding uh, artists, um, uh, really well known. Uh, for instance, they they've already got a movie. Uh, proposal going out around a book that they did with Roxanne Gay. So uh, they're really pivoting now. Uh, their original launch was definitely aimed at the direct market, uh, and they are very aggressive. They don't use di- uh, Diamond. They do. They self-distribute to uh, direct market stores, but they are turning their attention now to the book trade. Um, uh, and Viznik. Uh, because Viznik is, is really kind of the, really their head of book trade sales, essentially. And Colleen has a long history of working on marketing of all kinds, digital and traditional marketing in the book trade and in, in comics and pop culture category. So uh, we're, we're going to be hearing more from TKO Studios uh, in the future. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Mark Doyle, formerly of D.C., um, yes. Uh, is has moved to IDW Publishing. He is going to be the editorial director of Originals at IDW, 
and he, you know, he brings a many years. Was he fourteen years at at, at DC? He was a uh, the Batman was, executive editor. He was one of the founders of Black Label. Oh, the Black, yes, yeah. So uh, we're we're seeing these seasoned veterans, uh, particularly since a lot of them left DC, really kind of find their footing at other companies in the business right now. Yeah, I mean, I understand that sometimes companies go through rough times. And they have, they can't have as large of a staff. But DC really, really bled off generations of talent. And it may well be to the benefit of other comic companies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's going to have to be because they're, they're, they have really, uh, transformed their executive level at DC. So this is going to be very interesting. But, uh, also at IDW Entertainment, uh, which is obviously the, the, um, I guess the TV and film side of IDW Publishing. Johnny uh, Johnny uh, Gutman has been hired as the new VP of series. Um, Cassie Conaway has been hired as the director of development at IDW uh, Entertainment. And Andy Bailing uh, is the senior coordinator of development and production also at IDW Entertainment. And on that note, on the streaming and movie update, um, why don't we take a, a look at WandaVision? Now, um, now I don't think you you haven't seen this, has you? But I'm telling no, you, no, because uh, I am one of those um, heretics who refuses to um, keep my subscriptions ongoing and instead cancels them every time that I have run out of things that I desperately want to watch. So. Yes. Okay. Well, have well, not, I'm, have I, not resubbed Disney yet. Well, you have you have my deepest sympathy. Um, I actually think it's been um, kind of a highlight of the uh, streaming series. Now, maybe you guys are a lot more touched into uh, movie and TV culture sometimes than me. But um, when something gets me, it gets me. And <laughs> WandaVision yeah. really got me. And apparently, uh, it's doing that wonderful thing that doesn't always happen in the comic book world. Um, sometimes because the storylines are so dispersed over years and years of continuity, but apparently people are running out and buying and looking for Vision and Scarlet Witch comics. Yeah, um, so Marvel Comics has informed retailers that it's four graphic novel collections that it has marketed as being its most WandaVision connected have all sold out at the distributor letter distributor level in February. New printing will not be available until the end of April. So the Vision Complete Collection, uh, Vision and Scarlet Witch, the Saga of Wanda and Vision has sold out, House of M has sold out, and the Scarlet Witch by James Robinson Complete Collection are all sold out. So your local store may have it, um, but if they do, snap it up and you want it, snap it up now because they're not going to be able to resupply for a while and they're going fast. However, if you like digital comics, that won't be a problem. Interesting. Now, I think the one thing that is still available, I don't think the article talked about this, you know, the the, the Tom King version of uh, The Vision, which actually won a bunch of Eisners, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I actually think The Vision Complete Collection is the... Uh, oh, is that it? Oh. Tom King. Yeah, that's the Tom King one. Oh, it's okay, a complete well, collection of it. So there may be... Hmm. Um, some of let me just check right now on Amazon to see if any of the other editions of the same book are available, but I'm willing to bet no. I'm willing to bet they're all sold out. Let's see. Um, this is a this is more of an individual. It's not. I, don't, it, I didn't think it was a uh, a no, compilation. He, it, no, it's it's the complete collection. So hmm. he, he came out. In I think like two volumes. Yes, um, it did. You're right. And yeah. then then they brought it together in like one unitary volume. Yes, you're right. You're so right. all three, two two of these three books are sold out. The uh, volume two has exactly three copies left on Amazon. Um, <laughs> okay, there you go. And uh, they're not going to be resupplying for the printers for another two months. So. You know, right, so. I guess it's going to be a good time for uh, digital comics on that front. Well, that's – yeah, and that's actually another place you can go actually to get um, 
I suppose you can go to get the, the ver- some version of these comics. Yeah, yeah, they're all available so in digital you can format. Still get them on because digital. you know that's the nice thing about digital is you're not going to run out of copies. It doesn't happen. So anyway, it's very interesting. I, I, I have not actually read the Tom King vision, although the narrative around that story, it's not really the uh, what's happening in the TV show, but it's in some ways it's almost it's related to it because he does try to create this. He creates this world of suburban living. And, well, I mean, both House of M mm-hmm. and um, Vision both play on from opposite ends uh both characters desire to be able to have that right. normal life together yes and their cockeyed super heroic self-deceiving attempts to get it mm-hmm. um so it's almost like one is the mirror image of the other sure where the um, House of M, it's Wanda whose desires are shaping the world. And in um, Vision, it's Vision's desires who are shaping, that are shaping his world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, um, you know, it, 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 that's interesting. The, in, in, the, in the TV show, without giving anything away, uh, you know, it's, it's much more organized around um, the, the Scarlet Witch. Um, yeah. Well, I, it's not spoiling anything other than a movie that's been out for years to say, at the moment, when we leave the movies, Scarlet Witch is the one who is currently alive. Yes. So it would make sense that at the very least the first season would focus a little more on her. Yes. So I'm going to leave it at that because I don't want to, I don't want to drop any spoilers. But really, uh, I have a lot of praise for the TV show. It really hooked me. Uh, it's ex- it, the, I, I think the opening scenes, which are which are an inc- which are a lure, are uh, incredibly clever. Uh, their use of you know the old school TV sitcoms. Um, uh, it, Many of which I watched when I was a kid uh, was I found incredibly attractive and engaging. But it builds out. You eventually learn uh, what this means in terms of the characters in the show. So I'll leave it at that. But it, it, it's really been one of the highlights of uh, the early spring. Here is uh, having WandaVision each week to take a look at. Yeah, so, I look forward to seeing it the next time I have Disney. <laughs> um, well, you know what it is. Is it's just that. Uh, I don't necessarily have a vast amount of time to watch TV, so it doesn't make sense to subscribe to more streaming channels than I can watch at a time. Sure. So I'll circle back to this one later. Well, it does. It is sort of an amazing period now, where there's a new streaming service every week. Yes. <laughs> what, and what's uh, now Paramount Plus now? <laughs> well, Paramount Plus is a repackaged, pre-existing, not very good service. <laughs> so it was originally known as CBS All Access. And uh, nobody actually likes CBS enough to want CBS All Access unless they're really, really devoted to Star Trek. Um, so they went, well, we are connected to a whole studio. Why don't we just name it that? And so that's what they did. But I'm I'm not really convinced that they're that much different. They're just putting a, a little more content in and a new label. All right. Okay. Well, um, I think another um, movie that's uh, – I guess it's out now, available now, uh, Rhea and the Last Dragon. Uh, I'm really psyched uh, to see this. It really sounds extraordinary, and it, it seems as though we've entered into a whole new world of movie making that isn't uh, dismissive and uh, and pass on stereotypes and ignorance about the groups it chooses to depict. Yeah, um, so Rhea and the Last Dragon is not set in any real-world country mm-hmm. or even based on one specific real-world mm-hmm. country. Um, it is kind of put a lot of Asia, including Southeast Asia, in a blender. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there have been a lot of differing opinions on whether that was the way to go, but I definitely think it allows for 
a way of of including a lot of different traditions in one place um as long as you know no one takes away from it the idea that that's actually the way it is in the real world yeah yeah no i, I yeah yeah i understand that it's you know it's um it's a fusion based, it's a, yes it's a fusion and it's based on uh or inspired by a variety of cultures yes. but the more i read about it um uh, the more inspirational it seems to be. I mean, it, it seems to be that these, um, that the cultural material that's in there, uh, has been vetted, that's clear, that it's accurate, and that, uh, it gives the, the, the animators and the artists, uh, and the actors room to kind of be entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> so. And also, uh, it's no small feat that they pulled off its final year of production entirely work from home. Oh, yes. Um, Good point. I mean, a lot of movies that are coming out now are actually movies that were made completely or almost completely pre-COVID and are now just sort mm-hmm. of being brought out now that the timing's a little different. But uh, this movie was in active production and in active animation during the lockdown, and it is unprecedented for Disney or indeed any studio to have put out so much animation, so work from home distributed. Um, it really, it really may be the future of, of collaboration in the industry. Although it does sound like um, there were some bumps in the road not being able to have the actors in the room together because yeah. sometimes it can help to have them be able to play off each other. <laughs> now, doing a your your uh, your part with the mute on. Apparently, um, it doesn't just happen in Zoom business meetings. Um, it can happen during the, the doing the audio recording for a blockbuster movie. I mean, apparently, th- this movie was recorded at four hundred individual homes. Around the world, I mean, in the U.S., as various people took part in making the film. Oh my God! From I feel home. so bad for the audio editor. You can't, you, listeners. In case you don't know, I'm the audio editor. So if you need <laughs> someone to blame for any of our audio oopses, it's me. <laughs> I was not formally trained in this art, but um, but it's hard enough to edit three or four people on one recording. Recording there, you know, remotely from different homes. It is, I cannot imagine how hard it would be to clean the audio from 400 different homes to a level suitable for a blockbuster film. My hat is off to all of them. They deserve an Oscar just for that. It's amazing. And, and to, and have it of, have the kind of spontaneity and connection and emotional connection that you want to hear, even though everybody is like doing this. You know, from wherever they are, yeah. and software and smart engineers piercing it all together, piecing it all together. Um, but that's, it's uh, Kelly Marie Tran in the lead role, who the princess, and I believe uh, Aquafina apparently steals the show as with her performance uh, as the dragon. Yeah, um, and uh, this is unique in Disney princess movies in that the villain is also a princess. Um, there you go. Well, I mean, the human villain. There's yeah. also a okay, and and here's a a very mild spoiler, like so mild you're only spoiling the trailer. Trigger warning to people who have um deadly disease triggers because the villain oh, right. in this movie written long before COVID is a horrible disease that kills lots of people in a fantasy movie kind of way so funny how that's how that worked out yeah yeah well diseases have always been with us um it's just a little more on the nose than intended yeah um yeah so this fantasy world disease that does not resemble real world diseases has uh killed off a lot of people in this movie before the movie so there's a lot of like death, loss, tearjerker things about disease and death. So, I mean, it can handle it in a Disney way, but, I mean, uh, just look at how every single Pixar movie ups the ante and how much you're going to cry. Um, <laughs> That's just, what they do. <laughs> just, just go into it 
with your Kleenexes. There you go. Well, I will do that. I can. I, I really want to see this movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, it I sounds great. It's, it look. It sounds great. It looks great. Uh, it really looks that. Uh, and I'm, I'm. I'm embarrassed. The Mexican movie that. Uh, um, Coco. Which, Coco, right? Well, that was a Pixar, or was it? Or it was a Disney movie. It was a Disney movie. Right. And they put. They seem to put that movie together with the same kind of care and attention. Uh, to cultural material that that they seem to have been have done in this new one, right? And Coco was a learning experience for them mm-hmm. because the original draft of Coco did not pass the uh, Mexican culture test. Mm-hmm. But they actually were able to take the criticism, change the script, work with, do some research, and work with people who knew what they were talking about, exactly. and come up with something. That became a massive hit in the Spanish speaking world. I mean, Absolutely. just a blockbuster. Absolutely. So I think they really, learned from that that yes. that you know that kind of effort is repaid. And you know, and in the, the the story that I'm reading about, you know, uh, the movie, I mean, the actors just seem to appreciate this this you know this cloak of care uh, and attention to detail uh, to the cultural. Uh, Material in the movie, uh, you know, so that you can, you, so you know, they get it right and they can do their thing. Right. I so. mean, for example, they didn't just paste like smog onto this movie and put a bow on its hair, and it's like, and are like, hey, this is the female last dragon. No, they based uh, their dragon animation on Asian art, which a plus there, guys. Very cool. Um, okay. Uh, and maybe, hey, Kate, maybe you can talk a little bit about LaShawn Thomas. Yes. So, um, some of you in the audience may have heard of Vyaske, the, uh, genuine, only known historical black samurai. He was originally a slave who was freed and ended up working as a samurai for Oda Nobunaga. Um, and he's kind of a very interesting historical figure in Japan for all that. There's not a whole lot of detail in his life story that has passed down to us today. Um, and uh, comics creator turned animation creator, Lishan Thomas, who is an African-American man, um, has a very interesting history with anime studios. He's one of the um, few... American-born, American-taught um, animators who have, you know, gone to Japan and genuinely become a part of the anime industry. And so he um, is now the creator, director, and executive producer of Yasuke, a upcoming Netflix original anime series based on the historical samurai, but transporting him to kind of a... Um, science fiction samurai world, so they maybe have a little more room for poetic license and also room for mecha. Oh, yes, why not? Samurais and mecha? A black samurai and mecha? You couldn't ask for more. Yeah, I mean, well, it's really more sort of tech armor than mecha, but, sure. you know. Yeah. I, get, I get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, well, this sounds really great, too. I, I actually did not know much about him. Uh, but believe me, I'm fascinated to know more about now and to see uh, and to see this anime. Yeah, it, it really. Um, I'm looking forward to it, man. Yeah, I um, so more. he is partnering with the anime studio Mappa, which is they're not a cut rate production. They know what they're doing, so it's definitely something to look forward to. Very cool. But Very cool. Uh, with the cultural direction going in kind of an opposite direction maybe the same depending on how you slice it um (laughs) Derek Kolstad the screenwriter behind the John Wick series is now working on creating a live action film based on the famous Japanese action horror manga Helsing which also became Mm -hmm. anime um and so that's going to be live action. Um, it was originally, you know, written and illustrated by Kuta Hirano. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the 
live action version of it is created by a bunch of Americans. It could be amazing. It could be bizarre. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Um, but okay. at least they don't have to uh, de-Japanize it because it it is sort of populated by Europeans being as they are the descendants of the characters in Dracula. Uh, so, you know, that definitely gives a head and shoulders above um, certain other uh, <laughs> American live-action transformations of anime. Okay. Yeah, they don't have to work to make them white. It's a That's a plus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right. And okay, well look, very quickly, I just want to very quickly point out um uh I want to point you to a couple of stories on publishersweekly.com slash comics. We have um uh we've got an interview with JD Morvan, who is a kind of a, a actually a really well known European comics writer. Um and in a really unusual project um that resulted in a kind of a photo uh, photo, photographic comics hybrid nonfiction uh, account of uh, really one of the great and legendary heavy right title fights in, in, in sports history. And the book is called uh, Muhammad Ali uh, Kinshasa 1974, and it's about uh, the heavyweight title fight between the champ, the GOAT, Muhammad Ali, uh, and George Foreman, the young uh, – fearsome heavyweight slugger at the time he was a champion uh ali was uh, trying to regain his title after being stripped of it for refusing uh to serve uh, in the army during the vietnam years and uh, uh the fight was called the rumble in the jungle and uh, it's the book is a combination of the lives of uh yeah don king the notorious promoter ali uh, 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 oh, um, the head of uh, Zaire or the Republic of Congo at the time. Uh, so anyway, we have an interview with him about the book and putting it out and uh, and how it was part of a photographic uh, and comics project that he put together with the great French uh, photographic collective Magnum. Uh, and uh, the photographer that he worked with on this particular book, his name was Abbas, and uh, the artist is Rafael Ortiz. Also, Christian Radke, uh, who many may remember at doing an, uh, uh, a book, uh, publishing uh, a book called uh, – what is it? Oh, I'm embarrassed. I Can't Imagine Wanting, uh, I believe was her earlier book. She has a, a new book out called Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. Uh, it's a graphic nonfiction account uh, of navigating the, no, uh, the quality of loneliness, the state of loneliness, uh, as we've all been forced in, into a pandemic. Uh, so the book is called Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness and um, published by Pantheon, and it will be released uh, this summer and – there's an author's uh, – uh, there's a, a deep dive into the book and to her approach to comics uh, by <clears throat> by Luisa Ermolino over at PublishersWiki.com slash comics. Welcome, right. listeners. Read. Read our wonderful comics coverage. We are not just a podcast. We're also a magazine. This is where Heidi would say, smash that subscribe button or something of that ilk. Okay. <laughs> She she does a lot more SEO than we do, I think. All right. So do we want to do some briefs, Calvin? Yeah, give, yes. I think we got enough time to squeeze a few briefs in here. We certainly do, and we've got some fun briefs today. Yeah. No depressing briefs, just fun briefs. Let's so do it. One fun brief is that Kadansha is aiming for the Guinness Book of World Records by re- releasing a Titan-sized attack on Titan comic. Yes, it's going to be a special edition. It is going to be the largest published, commercially available uh, comic in the world. And so they're hoping to, you know, get into the record books with it. Um, They are scaling it. They are literally scaling it 
theoretically to be big enough to fit in the hands of a 49-foot titan. There is a picture from Kodansha of a woman holding a mock-up of this book. It is probably as tall as she is. It's quite She's tiny. (laughs) She's mighty tiny. She's tiny, but still, it's okay. Sorry, it's not quite that. She's still smaller than her. The comic book is going to be over three feet long and over two feet wide. So, yeah. Um, it will weigh 30 pounds and they are publishing only a hundred copies at the moment. It will retail for $1,500, which, hey, you get in the Guinness Book of World Records, um, really kind of not that high of a price for an ultimate collector's item. Without a doubt. All right. Get it while it's hot. Seriously, this is, that would be, yeah, that's a price that is worth it if you're a huge collector. Um, so it'll be interesting to see who snaps it up. Um, How much is it going to cost to ship the damn thing? But <laughs> I don't know. I imagine that is not included in the price. <laughs> no, I suspect not. I suspect not. Um, but on the other hand, if you can get a a mattress shipped to you, I suppose this book wouldn't be too hard. Sp- yep, there you go. Um, also, at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry is – uh, christening their reopening with a huge um, Marvel Comics exhibit. So it is uh, going to be entitled Marvel Universe of Superheroes. It's going to have more hundred, more than 300 artifacts, including costumes, props, and original art. Um, and it is absolutely sold out as far as tickets go um, for the whole next week. But, sounds like a great show. I wonder if it's going to travel. Does I really it, hope so. It really yeah. sounds like the kind of show <laughs> that does. might. Yeah. Um, really I'm psyched because, you know, maybe – I don't know there's a museum in New York they'd bring it to, but they might bring it to the Franklin Institute or something. So uh, please, please let this exhibit travel. It sounds very cool. Yeah, no, it really does sound, sound fun. All and right. on one more happy note, Die, uh, <laughs> the comic with the uh, – the rather grim name <laughs> yes. from Image Comics by Karen Gillan and Stephanie Hans has won uh, one of the British Fantasy Awards. Um, so the British Fantasy Society um, gives out award, awards every year to the best in, well, fantasy. Um, and they have won best comic graphic novel in that category. Um, so points to them. Makes sense because Karen Gillan is a Brit, but there's a lot of British comics talent out there, so you know, it's it's uh, good to get some recognition for it. It That's was right. a recent finalist for the 2020 Hugo's, um, but Nandi Okafor's and Tana Ford's Bulgaria uh, won out over them, which you know it was a crowded field. There's a lot of great yeah. stuff out there. Yeah. All right. So that's that's it for this week. Next time around, we do a, a news show like this. We hopefully will have Heidi in on the call. <laughs> we'll have Heidi back. Actually, can I throw in one little small thing? I think Please we do. talked about it briefly. Vault Comics, uh, which is I think is based on the West Coast, Henry. They yes. uh, have inked a new book graphic novel distribution deal with Simon and Schuster. Uh, I think it's always interesting when these comics world comics world publishers uh, move uh, from Diamond. Or, or Diamond Book Distributors to uh, one of the bigger name, you know, book trade distributors. So but, all comics has just made the made the move. But you know, it's interesting. It's not just a distribution deal; it's a global distribution deal. Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. I think that's some of the appeal of going with one of the bigger companies is uh, that Diamond's network overseas is questionable. I mean, it's it's. Good for a company whose focus is, you know, North America, but it's definitely not what you would call an international distribution juggernaut. So it makes sense that if they've got, you know, international aspirations, that Simon Schuster might be the way to go. I think so. So points to them. It's a great sign for Vault Comics. Yep, it absolutely is. All right. 
And um, great. Well, I, it, and it's a great great time for us. We uh, <laughs> we're, we're we're kind of at the end of our uh, of our hour here, I think. So or or getting pretty close to an hour. So um, well, so you know, hey, Heidi wasn't here, but I think we navigated this pretty well. I think so. Um, That's right. Heidi, if you actually listen to this point in the podcast, tell me that you heard me, and I will get you a coffee. But you if you do not say, Kate, you promised me a coffee at the end of this podcast, I will know that you didn't listen to the end of this podcast. Calvin, don't tell her. I won't tell her. Listeners, don't tell her. It's a secret. We've decided that we're going to punk our co-host, so there you go. (laughs) So, okay. Calvin, it's a test. It's a test, not a punk. Sorry about that. Yes, (laughs) it's a test. (laughs) All right. So on that note, I guess um, there will be more to come.